Nick Turzo, and you are listening to The Radical. This week's guest and I go way back to high school. Of course, unlike me, he went on to Stanford University to earn a degree in computer science and later would go on to earn his doctorate in computer-based music and acoustics. He's gone on to become a serial entrepreneur, having co-founded many successful companies that were either acquired or went public. His current venture brings his vision back to music in creating a participatory platform for tens of millions of music creators and fans each month. Dr. Jeffrey Smith, CEO and co-founder of Smule, joins me to discuss his vision about participatory music coming a decade prior to TikTok, the huge global community that has become Shmuel, the continued challenges of processing speeds and what this means to audio, and growing Smule into Silicon Valley's favorite term, a unicorn company. We also discuss his parents' early role in his development, both academically and musically. Coming up, my conversation with Jeffrey Smith. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Nick. Thank you so much. I know we had a couple of calendar mishaps, but I've been really uh, dying to speak to you. Um, as the CEO and co-founder of Smule, um, I have a million questions because I think that area has become way more fascinating since you launched this. Um, and you were one of the you know, leaders of the pack in my mind, right? Was that 12 or 13 years ago? Yeah. Thank you. And I'm thrilled to be here. It's nice to see you, Nick. So tell me, I, I mean, this space is so fascinating to me because it became like, you know, music has always had this, you know, a little bit of a reputation being a little passive, right? Um, but with Smule, you've been able to do a couple things, which, you know, when the phone got to be a touch, touch phone, 3D, whatever goes on with our phones nowadays, you know, you were able to actually turn it into an instrument, right? Um, with the magic piano and all that stuff. Um, so let's talk about how you get from kind of that, where you become kind of almost a music app company in a way, to today you're almost more of a social media platform in its own right. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, I think threading, threading it together for us is this mission of connecting the world through music and of bringing music back to its roots of more of a creative participatory medium. So it's not just this lean back, plug in and listen, it's be part of it, be a participant. And, and that's really the focus of our company and the focus of our mission. Along the way, early on, we experimented with different products to test what an iPhone could do, what distribution was possible, what business models were like. And so we rolled out a series of applications that were literally market tests for us to better understand to what extent we could convince people to create music together on iPhones. <laughs> Having validated that in the scale of millions, we then began to realize that um, to really scale a company, we needed to think about these two different conflicting goals and how we would trade those to try to find a common medium between them. Those goals are access, that is how easy it is for somebody to create music, and the other side being expression, 
how unique is the music you're creating? And what we found throughout history with music companies is they are on the side of one or the other. They build something that's extremely accessible. And that's great. In fact, I remember a guy coming in one time and saying, hey, I can give you a demo of a product where even my cat can create a song. Do you want to hear the song? And I said, not really. <laughs> and it's not that I don't like cats. I was just skeptical that it was going to be interesting music, but incredibly accessible. Then versus the other side, you have these guys building these new instruments that are amazing. But if you think about it, if it's even harder to play than a violin and pulling, you know, horse hair against sheep gut is not straightforward, then you don't have a lot of, while, while you get a lot of expression and depth, you just don't have the access. And so we've been thinking about the problem of how do you find the medium between those two? Because we want millions, if not billions of people to participate in creating music, but yet it still needs to be music. It still needs to be expressive. It still needs to be a, a piece of content that somebody else is actually going to want to listen to or watch or join. And, and so hence, that's, that's what we focused on. And, and so we've been spending a lot more time on the expression side, whereas early on, we spent more time on the accessibility. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating path to where you are today. Yeah. Um, I mean, as you look at yourself today, then, how do you categorize your company, really? Uh, we think of ourselves as a music creation company. We don't think of ourselves purely as an entertainment company. We don't think of ourselves as a social media company. We think our bread and butter is music creation and specifically participatory music creation. That's really where we, we spend our time. And so we'll measure our success, not only in terms of how many unit users are using our products, how much content is out there on our network, trillions of songs. We'll measure it mostly by how many people are creating each day, how many people are coming into our platform and creating musical content. Right. And what, um, talk to me a little bit about that community. I mean, how large is it, if you can say, I mean, a rough estimate, um, how engaged are they? Like how many hours do they lock in <laughs> these really active users? Yeah. So we have tens of millions of users across the world. Uh, in terms of engagement, a typical user will spend an hour a day on our product. So the engagement numbers are really high. When you think about what that means in terms of output, we're storing 10 terabytes a day of user-created musical content in the cloud and then distributing that across the network and allowing lots of other people to access it. So uh, pretty high engagement, uh, pretty significant scale. Um, what surprised us is that how many people actually want to participate in creating music. You were asking, well, who is the audience? Who's a typical community member? Um, yes, we have people who are really skilled in music creation, but most of our users aren't. Most of our users are just coming along to have some fun. But those users re rely on those more skilled users to create a lot of the structured musical content that they could then use to come in and have a more seamless experience, more accessible as we were talking about earlier experience. So 
we have users on our community who are composing songs, who are arranging songs, who are putting in lyrics, who are putting in the tone and pitch information so we could do the right pitch correction or we could apply the creative types of filters. Um, we have users who are even creating styles, so all of these aesthetic effects of how you want a song rendered. And not everyone could do that, but the set of people who can do it are often on our community and they're doing it in ways that benefit everyone else so that you can come in and have one click to awesomeness. So you want to say, okay, I want to sing Let It Go and I want it to be in a forest and I want three partners and I want it to sound like it's in a forest and then I want some of these AR effects so I'm kind of looking like an animal and then I want to transition into a living room with a different acoustic um, and um, I want my pitch correction to sound like this artist. All of those things that you might want to do as you're creating your song. Well, on our platform, somebody's already done that and you could say, okay, I want to use this style, this sound filter, this video transition, this composition, um, in this case, probably from Disney, one of our partners, and then you drop it in and, and then off you go. So uh, for us, the power of our community is leveraging those skilled musical creators for the benefit of everyone. Right. And once that's created, does that get pushed out on other on people's social channels? I mean, is that? Yeah, all the time, all the time. Um, you know, lots and lots of content. Uh, probably 10% of our users share their content off platform. Most places they'll share will be places like TikTok or Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or what have you. And we actually have a lot of content coming back content creators coming back from those same sources, people at Facebook come back to Smule to create musical content and then push it back out to Facebook. That's happening a lot more on TikTok these days as well, where TikTok's become one of our primary channels for people discovering Smule and a source of musical creators. Right, so TikTok in a way is, it's an augmentation to what you're doing. It's not a competitor. I suppose we're all competing with one another for engagement minutes. And if you want to splice the value proposition in different ways, but in this case, I think TikTok's a place where young kids go to watch videos with music and Smule's a place where people go to create music together. Interesting. Well, what I think has been come fascinating to me is, you know, as a former kind of A&R guy, kind of guy that worked in the right. studio, right? Right. Um, is watching guys, these young kids like on YouTube, right? Kind of work like an Ableton recording program, like it's a video game. The gamification yeah. of it all. How has yeah. that played into what you're doing? I mean, the tools you build, all of that. Well, so gamification is not something that we are big fans of. We understand that it works and works better in different contexts than others. But what we found instead is that what's best is for people to feel uh, authentic and to feel uninhibited in when they're coming into our platform to create musical content. So we'll do things to try to reduce the inhibition, but giving them a high score or giving them points to motivate them to take certain actions or to win trophies for us has been not so motivational. In fact, I'll give you an example. Uh, we know that when our users share content off platform, so they create a song on Smule with a friend, there's a recording of the both of them back and forth. It's mixed. It's awesome. 
when they share it out on a Facebook or another platform, that ends up being a significant source of brand impressions and then a significant source of organic traffic coming back onto our platform. So we encourage people to share. We even used our internal currency. So we have a currency where you could use it to buy stickers and give people stickers and give them smiley faces and stuff. Um, you could even trade the currency to get a VIP pass, a subscription. And so we wanted more sharing. And so we traded, we gave people points, currency, if they shared more. And what ended up happening for us is that sure enough, we doubled the number of shares on the platform. However, only half of those shares um, were clicked on. Let me rephrase that, the click-through rate. So if you looked at how many pieces of content were shared, how many got clicked on, that got cut in half. So we doubled the shares, the click-through rate got cut in half. And so it had absolutely no change whatsoever on traffic flow back onto the platform. So from this example, we realized that you might be able to motivate people to share more, but in the end, it's going to be about whether the content is interesting, whether the content is engaging. And if that content's shared, great. You can create bridges, you can create reach. But if it's not engaging, and if it's just created for different motivational reasons, then we don't have the same impact. You know, it's, there's a, a different analogy here on gamification of how you try to make people less inhibited. Because the fact is not all of us are comfortable singing in public. In fact, in this country, I would say about a third of us are comfortable singing publicly. That means two thirds not. And of the two thirds not, I'd say half of those are comfortable in the shower or their car, but not outside of the shower or the car. <laughs> and so we think a lot about how do we motivate more of those people to be less inhibited. And gamification for us hasn't really moved the needle on inhibition. What has moved the needle more is giving them filtering technology so they could change how they look or sound or giving them a partner so they don't have to lead. Um, or just making sure we're finding the thing that they know you know, and so it's it's not like the one song you want to listen to. It's the one song you know how to sing. And so the content recommendation there ends up becoming really critical. And another facet a thing we do is if we just shower you with professional performances when you come on and explore content, it's pretty intimidating. If instead you could say, okay, that one's really good. And then, okay, that one was very human. <laughs> it's very authentic. Then turns out this motivates more people to then participate and be willing to take that next step. Because I mean, when you realize that what's fun about music isn't necessarily just the perfection, it's the connection. It's the connection to one another. It's the identification that we're, we're people and that we're real. And I'd even go so far as say venturing into your password a little bit in A&R you know, those artists who are authentic, where it's not just stayed a complete polished, repetitive thing, like Willie Nelson coming in a bar early in the concert when you didn't expect him to do that. Um, it's those authentic gestures that make it less polished, more authentic, and more engaging, more human. And so those are a lot of the things that we're looking to develop on our platform, just a little bit different than the gamification. 
Right. And do you, I mean, having gone through what we've all gone through the last 18 months of kind of live music going away and all that, what has that meant to you on your platform? I mean, what have you seen during this period of kind of all of us isolating? Well, first off, I... I don't love the isolation. I really miss the live music and I hope we're going to break through onto the other side of this soon enough because the state we're in, I don't think is a healthy state long-term. And, and my heart goes out to all of those people who've had to make sacrifices for their lives and their professions during this period of time, just to put food on the table, just to pay for their home. Smule has been, um, we've been on the other side of, we've, we've, we've benefited from what's gone on with the pandemic and these lockdowns. In fact, we could tell you the date and time when any country in Europe or Asia had their first lockdown based on our traffic patterns, they'd shoot through the roof. So that's true, but I don't think it necessarily altered the course of what was happening already. I think it possibly just accelerated an existing trend we're lonely people. We don't have these communities where we get out and do as much stuff with each other anymore, unfortunately. So being able to sing songs with people across the internet, different cultures, countries, even strangers, it, it's something we're going to do more. And it's, it is, it's a meaningful way to connect with people where it's not all of the same agendas of pictures and text. It's, it's music. It's where we're going to connect and kind of have this different experience. We're almost connecting through the souls rather than through some other type of lens. And so I think that that's a trajectory that's happening because of just the way our world is being organized. Now, the pandemic, I think in our case, probably accelerated that trend. Interesting. That's fascinating. I love how actually geographically you could watch exactly what was going down. Yeah. That's wild. Um, So let me ask you, I mean, as phone technology continues to kind of enhance and, you know, I don't know what we're going to see in the future other than improvements in camera. Is there anything on there that kind of would enhance what you're doing or not enhance? I mean, are most of your, I assume most of your users are using their phones? Yeah. Yeah. All of our users are using their phones. The audio technology and processing power is really important to us. Uh, we could use 10 times more than we have. And of course, what we have on the phones right now is what 10X, 100X compared to where we were on the original iPhone, which wasn't bad. I mean, the latency wasn't bad. So by latency for us, we care about if you're singing into the microphone, how long does it take that signal to get through the processor and then back out through the speaker so you could hear it? You know, if you're giving a live concert and you got a half second latency, you're dead. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't work. You're getting feedback. You're getting all of these other problems. Well, similarly, if you're singing into your phone, if there's latency, it's trouble. And, and so if what, we, what you find is that across, especially the Android ecosystem, there's a lot of different device manufacturers who have different levels of quality on their audio pipeline and their video pipeline. And we have to do a ton of work to make up for that and then to try to get some lowest common denominator across this diverse um, landscape of devices. Um, And so when we get big jumps in audio processing power or audio capture, we can get you that much closer to a studio level recording, which we'd love to do. 
So if we're capturing at 44K instead of 22K, that's a big deal. Our ability to capture at 44K, it's going to come down to microphone quality, processing quality, and then just the nature of that audio pipeline. Um, if we have more CPU processing power, then we can do all kinds of amazing audio experiences and we can do those dynamically. Like, what if you want to sound like you're singing in the shower? Well, we could do that with a convolution algorithm, but that's pretty CPU intensive. Um, what if you want to sound like you're singing in the Sydney Opera Hall down in Sydney, Australia? We could do that too. But again, that's processing power. And so whenever we can get that juice from the processor and we can get that consistently across more devices, it's amazing the types of experiences we can create for people, um, putting them in different places and settings, allowing them to sound exactly like David Bowie on Space Oddity, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of different things that we could do to take advantage of that power. So we want, we want more. We need more. Right. Of the OEMs, who's kind of the, who's ahead of in that race in your, as of today in your mind? Apple's got the best device. Apple's got the best audio pipeline. Apple has the best <laughs> microphone. Apple has the best speaker. Uh, they're still light years ahead yeah. of the pack. When you look at Android, you know, Samsung's made a run at it, but then Samsung, you know, they try too hard. They try to create their own audio pipeline that's different than the rest of Android. And then it doesn't work. And, and so they don't have the same R&D staff that Google has on all of Android. And, and when they try to do a one-off, then it forces folks like us to try to figure out how to support the one-off. And it ends up doing more harm than good. So, um, but we like Samsung. It's a great device. We just wish they wouldn't try to turn on a karaoke mode thinking that was going to help anybody because that actually breaks everyone's audio pipeline who does um, speaker mic capture. Uh, so, but we like those guys. Uh, we just did a deal with Huawei. We're hoping they're going to come back and make some noise again. They've had a few setbacks of late, but they have a um, decent set of devices. Xiaomi's not a bad set of devices. But um, by far and away, Apple has the highest quality product on the market. Right. Is it hard for you? Because you have a lot of, it looks like kind of connections to China in a way. I mean, with some of the device yeah. manufacturers, I mean, I don't know if Tencent invested in you or not. I can't figure that part out. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I read Evan Osno's book on China, you know, and watching everything that's going on right now there. Does yeah. that have any effect on your life right now? Absolutely. Absolutely profound effect on my life. Uh, and, you know, we, we need to be careful in these conversations about how far we go, given the sensitivities in our geopolitical state right now. I'm sensitive to that, yes. Yeah, but uh, what I'd say is that we still have two internets. There's the internet in China where they've protected it and walled it off. So you can't use Google in China. You can't use Facebook in China. And those are our two primary partners. So for us to penetrate the Chinese market, we're at a significant handicap. The reverse isn't true. All the Chinese manufacturers, you know, they distribute their software with the exception of Xiaomi there for a little while or no, Huawei a little while. Um, yeah, they're out and about. You can use TikTok anywhere. It's not throttle except for India, I guess. So um, yeah, so we're at a competitive disadvantage in China. And that's a significant market for us. We can't use the same social structure coming into China that we do in the rest of the world. We also find that 
Chinese practices are different. Now, we don't have to get all moral about it, but you know, what it means to hack and steal content off of a network is very different in this country than it is in China. And we often have Chinese competitors who are spending fortunes of money and putting armies of people to hack content off of our network, pull it down, put it on their network so they could replicate the experience on their networks that we have on Smule. So we've had to invest a fortune in security technology and watermarking technology to try to provide more of a level and competitive playing field because we don't have a legal recourse to go in and resolve things. There's nothing we could do legally. It's just the real politique and the real politique in this case is there aren't a lot of rules. <laughs> and so that's kind of the competitive environment you have to accept these days where the Chinese firms don't have rules and they're going to they're going to compete and the american firms have the rules plus we're kind of locked out of china it is a disadvantage and it's something that we have to manage mm-hmm. and to add on to that um what are some of your biggest markets around the world cuz i feels like you're more, almost more of an international play than a domestic play yeah well we're in gosh 170 countries we have significant volume in in all of those countries um our biggest markets would be uh indonesia india brazil russia united states probably in that order in terms of user volume mm. and can you What's the signal in in those countries? You know what I mean? What triggers there? Have you figured that out? No, we're we're still figuring it out. Uh, One of the key things is to understand that um, it's about content. You know, if I'm in Indonesia, a lot of the content that I want to sing is sacred or folk or some combination of sacred folk and pop. And so you need to be able to understand what content you want to provide available to that market for those people to engage in your platform. I think that's, that's the biggest issue to figure out the secondary issues around business models, business models that we assume scale in one country often don't scale in another country. If you have a subscription based business where you need a credit card, that doesn't work so well in India. Um, It works very well in the United States. And so how do you adapt your business model Well, in our case, making sure we're protecting rights holders and protecting the people who authored the music or composed the music. That's really important for us to do in our business. Um, And so you have to think about different approaches to business models so that not only we can generate revenue, but we can also protect rights holders. In our business, we, we can't just give music away for free. Somebody wrote the music. Somebody recorded the music. uh, They need to be paid for their work. Um, there aren't a lot of composers that are well off. We need to pay composers for the work that they're doing. And in our platform, it's all about the singer songwriters and the writers. That's really the bread and butter on our platform. So thinking about how that plays out in international business models is, is one of the challenges we face. And let's take off on that. I mean, coming into this as a, look, I know you're a musician, um, personally, (laughs) you're trained, um, what surprised you about like the rights area as you kind of entered into this and, uh, what was the good and what was the bad? You know, I'd say what surprised me is that it's mostly good. I went into it fearing the worst 
And I think if you just look at it from a broader perspective, most people, they're just trying to grow their business. They're trying to do their jobs. And, uh, you know, and I think when, when technology companies or gaming companies have come in with a more provocative or confrontational approach, then I think rights holders have been more protective and more, more provocative themselves. You know, Pandora was trying their best trying to find ways around rights holdings coming in through radio it's a way to kind of have a new a new approach to rights management and i think what they ended up finding unfortunately was they still had the same rights issues and then they also then had on top of that government regulation of what radio meant and so they had to address both of those issues i think in contrast you know i'm sure I'm sure that uh, you know Google, YouTube, and Spotify have had lots of moments and lots of iterations with rights holders, but we're in a place now where there's scale and there's growing revenue streams where rights holders are making more money today than they were 10 years ago when we were, what were we doing 10 years ago, Nick? I forget, 20 years ago, CDs, 40 years ago, cassette tapes, something like that. But um, I think they're a whole lot better off now. And I think their businesses are scaling. And I think what we're also recognizing that when we solve the business model questions around rights, there's a much bigger opportunity for us to build online audiences and have bigger brands and better fan engagement through these business models that allow more people to access and participate in the content. Like at Smeal, for example, we have contracts with every major publisher across the world. We've worked on it for 12 years. We have um, comprehensive agreements with the, all of the majors. We're always continuing to update and iterate on those. Um, but it's something that we took pride in doing and working hand in hand with that industry up front. But then the other side of it is um, we also work a lot with the labels and promoting artists. We have 800 of the top artists going off of billboard charts who create original content on Smule. So if you're Demi Lovato, you could sing your hit in your purse closet and invite your fans to come join you <laughs> where they're singing alongside with you. It's super fun. And what we find is that when Demi releases her single on iTunes and Spotify, and then if she releases her original version on Smule, we can cross promote and we can see an even bigger pop for Demi on her branding and her awareness of that content because now she's got both audiences, the consume audience and then the participate audience. And then the participate audience ends up being meaningful as well because they're creating all of these recordings with Demi that they're sharing on Facebook and Instagram, which get pretty good reach. And so I guess what we found is that there's more synergies and that there's more opportunities to drive kind of accretive models than we'd initially anticipated. Maybe put another way, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little biased, but I think that music's gone from an investment standpoint from the dog to the darling, because we realize now how engaging music is. And if we can just get a business model that works for everybody and that scales, artists are happy, labels are happy, publishers are happy, bureaus are happy. Um, it works. It works because, and it ultimately works though, because the medium is extremely engaging.
Right. Well, that's really what I kind of wanted to ask you because I can imagine, um, I mean, you're about 13 years into this, right? Maybe plus. Um, going out to venture capital back then saying, hey, you know what, this is kind of a music play <laughs> versus today where everyone's yeah. trying to get a piece of this, whether through music catalogs. I mean, it's coming yeah. from all sides now. Yeah. So no one ever saw this as an alternative asset class. Back then, yeah. no one wanted to deal with music with all the agita. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's, it's funny. Yeah, it, it, it is funny. And you look at the management teams that have come in to Warner and to Universal. These guys aren't thinking the same thing they were thinking 15 years ago. They're thinking growth. They're thinking scale. So they're great partners. They're great partners to think about that because that, that's what we're thinking about as well. But I think we all recognize even, you know, for me as a classical musician, you know, I remember stories of Beethoven of how Beethoven would have to publish his new sonata in five different countries concurrently to maximize his revenue because with a printing press, people would then copy it and rip it off. And unless he had an early window in all of those countries at the same time, he just couldn't make as much revenue. So here's poor Beethoven releasing his sonata in five <laughs> countries on the same day, just so that he can get a little bit more revenue before somebody copies it. So this is a problem that's been going on for a long time, and I'm, I'm certainly sensitive to it. That's funny. Well, I appreciate your, you know, kind of care and kind of respect actually for songwriters and such, you know, because it is a tough way to still make a living right now. It's become really a even more of a penny fraction business. It used to be a penny business. Now it's a penny fraction business. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. tough. Um, is your model revenue-wise, I mean, are you based on advertising and you have like a premium tier of some sort? We do do some advertising. Uh, we haven't been as successful with that. Um, and I think it's because our core value proposition is more around create versus consume. People come to us to create, create with others. So by the way, in terms of the music license, that's a sync license. So we get sync licenses for all of the content that's created and synced on our platform. We have performance licenses as well for stuff that's listened to, but most of, most of the licensing we work and most of our value proposition is around the create. So the advertising hasn't worked as well. We do gifting as well. That's, what, that's some percentage of revenue. Our bread and butter is subscription. And what we do is we package in premium services together um, for a subscription, and then people can buy a subscription for a week, a month, or for a year. And so those services include access to our catalog of content, a premium audio effects, unlimited storage, support on how they distribute their content on and off platform. What we're trying to do is really make it easier for creators to create. And so our subscription offering really facilitates that. Right. And do you see the same results as a gym membership? Or do you actually see if someone's doing the subscription model that 90% of these guys are, are women are engaged? So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, as far I as... I mean, they're not paying and not going to the gym, are they? <laughs> right, right, right. As far as subscription, uh, you know, the older they go, the more, older the demographic is, the more likely they'll buy. Um, so you're not going to see a whole lot of subscribers above 18 the flip side is the people who are, you know, less than 18 years old are going to be the most active on your community and they're going to share the most content. And so you're kind of looking at ways to balance a business model across all those different groups of people. Um, but the key for us is, is that are we earning that subscription? Is there a reason for them to come back into the product tomorrow, the day after, a year after? And that's where we focus a lot of our time um, on our platform. Cool. I've got a few more questions and then we can, uh, we'll wrap this up. Um, 
I'm curious, is your, is, is your app, like the actual karaoke kind of style app, is that what's on Apple TV or not? Is that different? So we have our app running on Apple TV. We have. The problem we have on Apple TV is the latency. So when we're trying to capture audio into um, the microphone, not only do we have the latency of going over your Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, but then we have the latency of the HDMI going back out to your sound system because usually you got your TV going out through HDMI to the speaker. And you th we think that HDMI is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it's, it's slow as a dog. And so that's the, that's the challenge that we have in home entertainment environments is just making the basic technology work. So if you're trying to capture a recording off of your TV or record and broadcast off of your TV, that's tough. It's a lot easier for us to solve that problem off of an iPad or an iPhone. Mm, that's interesting. All that latency. Oh boy. So that's pretty amazing. Too technical? Too technical. <laughs> no, no. It's a, for a guy, I mean, I'm used to being around it. It's an, you know, I can see where it's an issue for yeah. sure. Um, so was there like, as you kind of have gone through this now for many years and you're a serial entrepreneur, you've been successful with your prior company too. Um, was there a moment ever that you thought, man, this ship's going down, man. I can't, I can't quite find, you know, what our proposition is, what market fit. Um, was there ever that moment or did you guys just keep going, iterating until you kind of found it? Yeah, I, there, there are absolutely those moments and some of them are real and some of them we're just kind of worried about because we're paranoid. Um, but yeah, the, the, the expression we have is, is that every day is an adventure. So we, you, you can't really take anything for granted. And part of, part of my job is to try to anticipate some of those negative scenarios and make sure we're building, building in advance to preempt and manage them so that we don't have adverse consequences that could hit the business. So, uh, so yeah, those those absolutely happen, and I think that that's why that uh, you know the people that start companies, I think they're either naive or they're tenacious. I don't think they're smart. Um, I think they're probably naive about all of the challenges they're going to face, and then I think they're just they're just tenacious where they're going to gut it out. You know, the more runway you have, the more likely it is you're going to get the plane off the ground. We've been fortunate at Smeal that we've now been profitable for, for eight quarters. We're positive cash flow, significant base of users and subscribers. But that in itself was, was pretty, pretty challenging to get to that stage. Because if you think about it, we have a business model where we pay the rights holders their share. We pay a significant amount of money to host our network. We're storing 10 terabytes a day of content. And then we have to pay Apple and Google their 30%. And then on top of that, we need to pay for our employees and you know, taxes and the rest. So uh, it's challenging to get to a business where you have the scale where you could actually have a profit. And it's not like we're um, having a lot of cash flow here. We're, we're paying our bills and we're reinvesting to the best that we can. But yeah, getting to this stage, yeah, there were certainly lots of hills we needed to climb and lots of challenges that we needed to face. Right. And you are now in the magical unicorn club, right? If someone was doing a valuation. Well, uh, you know, I, I try not to get into that whole conversation and the rest. Uh, but yeah, our company has 
has built some value alongside of our scale. And I think part of that is also recognition that um, businesses that focus on creators, and in our case, musical creators, are, are valuable businesses. Because in this world where you have all of these content choices, the, the folks that it can scale you know, interesting, unique content um, have opportunities to have uh, a, deeper, a deeper business, uh, a more long-term business. Cool. Okay, one last question, and this goes to us having known each other for many decades. Um, and I just want to know how this, what this was. I mean, with the Smith family, <laughs> I always thought you guys had an enormous amount of intellectual rigor. Um, seemed like you all were trained on instrument, you know, musically, classically. What was it that your parents imparted on you guys to watch so many, you know, watch you, your siblings become very successful? What was that? What went on in that household to, uh, to generate the success I've seen in all, all of you? Well, thanks for your kindness. And, I, and thanks for the credit to my mother and father. They certainly deserve uh, so much credit. Our community, too. The people in Alta High School taking us under their wings, the Don Wards, the Cheryl Hughes, the Marianne Martins. They're pretty amazing people. And it was a pretty, pretty supportive community that we had. I don't know. In our case, I think I have to credit my mother for, on the one hand, being very demanding, but on the other hand, absolutely believing absolutely believing in the potential. That was something that she never doubted. So I'll share a funny one of when my brother Curtis brought one of his first girlfriends home college and my mother interviewed her and she goes, so I'm not going to use her name. So what's your major? I don't know. My mom made a face. So what foreign languages do you speak? I don't speak any. My mom made another face. So what musical instrument do you play? I don't play music. At that point in time, my mom not only made a face, but she turned and she, she left. She walked away. <laughs> so you can, say, you can say what you want about my mother. But the fact is, we all practiced the piano. We did. And we all learned how to perfect practicing the piano. That was a rule. You wanted to have dinner, you would practice the piano. And I was hungry. You know, I'm on the thinner side. So I was definitely motivated to get to that practicing. It. <laughs> the three strike rule of Mrs. Smith. Right. So. <laughs> right. right. So three strikes, you're out. <laughs> yeah. I was just talking to my friend Jeff the other day, who of course our whole neighborhood took piano with my mom and Jeff goes, yeah, sometimes my mom would drop me off and I would go hide in the irrigation ditch. And I wouldn't show up for the lesson. And then my mom would come and pick me up and I'd climb out of the ditch and go back in the car. So yeah, there, there's definitely that side of it as well. But well, uh, It's quite a formula. They've turned out some pretty amazing kids. So it, it worked. So, and listen, I'm really, as a friend of four decades, I'm you know, so proud of what you've built here with Shmuel being, you know, that my career has been based in music. Um, it means a lot to watch someone kind of build this community and bring, you know, new people into music every year. Thank you. I, I feel fortunate to be part of it. And I've just also been thrilled to maintain the friendship and relationship with you and follow you through all of the amazing things you're doing as well, Nick. Well, thank you, Jeff. Great to see you. Stay healthy. Okay. And I look forward to seeing you in person soon. Okay. 
Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpot.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.